Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today in the show, we've got Adam Hayes, big buck killer from Ohio, and we're running him through the What Would You Do gauntlet, posing him some of the most difficult deer hunting scenarios and seeing how he'd handle it. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we are continuing our series of What Would You Do episodes. Now, you're probably familiar with this format now. We started it last summer. We did a handful last year. We've kicked off a few more this year. And now for the month of August, I want to do a four-week run of these leading into opening days for so many people because I think this format in which we pose hypothetical scenarios to an expert deer hunter and then find out how they would deal with them. I think it gives us a different level of insight. It gives us a different view into how these people do what they do. And at least for myself, I'm finding it particularly interesting and fun. I'm hoping that's the case for you guys. And our guest today is someone who I think we all want a better view into because of the kind of unbelievable success he has. This is Adam Hayes, of course. He's the host of Team 200 TV. He's been on uh, many other shows like Whitetail Addictions. He is the uh, he runs the Moon Guide company app product, all that kind of stuff. He's been targeting big mature whitetails for a long time now, and he's kind of made a name for himself by being one of the few people to really target the the biggest of the big uh, 200 inch whitetails. He has four 200 inch whitetails to his name, and you know, whether or not you care about inches, I don't think it's something that anyone has to care about. But if that's your thing, that's cool. But I think regardless of 200 or 20 inches, what Adam has done is he's found a way to find and target the, the hardest deer to kill in any given area. And that's something that can be applicable to you, whether you're in Iowa chasing 200 inch deer or in Maine chasing 110 inch deer. Um, we can learn something from Adam because the same things required to kill that tough buck in Iowa. Similar things need to be applied to kill that old but smaller deer in Michigan or Pennsylvania or Georgia, whatever. So that's the kind of stuff I wanted to learn from Adam today. We're going to give him a whole bunch of different questions, a whole bunch of different specific scenarios, and see how he would handle them. 
I also brought on a guest host today. I brought my guy Tony Peterson onto the main show. Of course, he hosts the Foundations podcast on Tuesdays, which I hope you are listening to because they're really freaking good. But I also want to bring Tony on for some of these What Would You Do episodes because he's got, you know, all sorts of other crazy things going in his head that I'm not always thinking about that I thought would be great to throw at these guys and give just a little bit more diversity to the kinds of questions we're asking, the things we're thinking about, and the topics we cover. So today, Tony and I are asking Adam what he would do in some tough whitetail scenarios. I think you're going to enjoy this one. I hope you do. So let's get to it and find out what Adam Hayes would do. All right, back with me on the podcast today, we've got Adam Hayes. Adam, welcome back to the show. Good to be here, man. I appreciate the invite. Yeah. How are things at uh, Wired to Hunt World headquarters this morning? They're good. They're good. Uh, did some some bean field glassing last night. Uh, got uh, got a new bow coming in today. I'll be shooting. So the whitetail season is approaching quickly, and I'm I'm getting excited. So uh, this podcast is well timed to help scratch the itch that is uh, very very profound right now. <laughs> How about you? Yeah. Yeah, this summer, this summer is just flown by. I don't know if it's because it drugged last year with the whole, you know, COVID deal, and this one's just flying by, but I cannot believe it's August already. It's crazy. It's come fast, that's for sure. So here's here's something I want to do, Adam. This is going to be a little bit unique compared to the past couple podcasts we've done together. Uh, the idea here is what I'm calling the what would you do gauntlet. So instead of me asking you, what do you think about scrapes or do you like grunt tubes? <laughs> instead, I'm going to lay out a very specific scenario. Basically, I'm going to tell you a story and ask you what you would do in that situation, how you would handle this scenario, et cetera, et cetera. And these aren't going to be softballs. These are going to be mostly they won't be softballs. <laughs> They're mostly going to be tricky scenarios. And uh, How many lifelines am I going to get? Yeah, we'll let you phone a friend just one time. <laughs> and, right. uh, and I think it's going to get us an interesting look into how you do this stuff, which you obviously do so well. And, uh, and also with me to help with this is my buddy and co-host and many of these, uh, Tony Peterson. So Tony is going to throw you some zingers as well. Uh, so are you ready for this gauntlet? Man, you got me nervous now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can handle it. I guess I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I trust you are. So, uh, Tony, I'm going to lead off here, but feel free to jump in when you've got one. Um, Here's my first scenario, Adam, and this is something that I, I know you're familiar with. You've you've dealt with this scenario, but I want to really get into the nitty-gritty of, of what you do. So imagine it is August 1st, and you're down in Ohio, maybe like central Ohio, southern Ohio. You're driving the back roads. It's the evening. It's nice and warm, and you are just driving around. Your binoculars on the passenger seat next to you. And this is a new area. You've never been in this zone. For whatever reason, you just decided, yeah, I'm going to take a drive through a new spot and see what's out here. And while you're driving these back roads, it's the last hour of daylight. You see that big old cage lift up in the back of the bean field. And you slam on your brakes or you quietly touch on the brakes, slow down, pull up your <laughs> binoculars. And you think, wow, that is, uh, 
that is a buck I'm interested in. Like that's a potential 200 inch type deer or just a, a mega giant that definitely gets your heart beating really fast. You see it that night. It's, mm-hmm. you know, at this point, I don't know, let's say it's nine o'clock in the evening. What do you do next? That, that's as far as I'm getting you. You see the buck. What do you do in the next half hour? What do you do the next day? How do you proceed in this situation when you're in a brand new spot? You've just seen this 200 inch type buck but you have, you have no permission or access anywhere in the area. What are your next steps? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's, <clears throat> excuse me. That's half the battle right there is just finding a big deer like that to hunt. Cause they're not on every farm. Um, so, you know, being able to locate one or know, you know, the general area where one is at is like I said, it's half the battle. So, I mean, first thing, obviously I'm going to do is, is you know try to get some landowner information and see um you know who owns the property and get a get a look at it you know from an aerial standpoint to see what the area looks like um it's kind of a catch 22 that time of the year i mean i know everybody's seen the you know the velvet giants and the bachelor groups in the summertime and you know that most most of those deer that have been doing the same thing you know all summer long in the same fields once you know they shed their velvet they're going to be gone you know sometimes they'll be close by sometimes they're going to be a couple miles away so that's a really difficult time to see one and then try to plan on you know if you can obtain permission you know hoping that that deer is going to be there once season rolls around is really a you know, a roll of, of the dice. You know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, deer, especially mature deer have their summer feeding patterns. And once that velvet comes off and they know, you know, they know what's coming, they're gone and they're vanished and they're back to their core areas, which, you know, could be close, you know, it could be on that same farm or it could, I've relocated deer, you know, over two miles away once they shed their velvet when they've gone back to their core area. So it's a really tricky situation, but I mean, being in an unknown area, you know, what more can you do other than, you know, do a little homework, find out who the landowners are. Like I said, get a look at the aerial and see what uh, the surrounding farms look like, see what the crop root, you know, crops look like, you know, cause those big deer um, that time of the year are going to be, focused at least in my part of the country they're focused on you know soybeans that are still green so um that's a key place to look if you um are able to get permission and to focus on but you know there's so many different things changing that time of the year too with you know, acorns are starting to drop farmers are starting to harvest crops so i mean food sources can change on almost a daily basis at that time of the year too so i mean there's a lot of variables to take into consideration but i guess to try to answer your basic question the first thing i'm going to do is you know see who i need to talk to and see if i can get permission what what's the like how many pieces are you going to try to get permission on let's say you know there's there's the there's the piece that you saw the deer on but then there's also you know maybe mm-hmm. several other adjacent farms that have got good cover and good food on them too. And like you said, there, there's probably going to be some kind of shift. So 
when you see a buck like that, how wide of a net do you cast? Are you going to go and try to get permission on every piece of property within a mile of it that, you know, has good cover on it or something like that? Like how, how much do you try to put in your favor ahead of the season, knowing that stuff's going to change? Or is it, man, I'm going to get permission on one piece and that'll, you know, take a flyer and see what happens. Well, it seems like this days you're lucky if you can get one spot. I mean, obviously the more the better, but I've always been a firm believer that I'd rather have the right five acres than the wrong 500. So just because you've got access to, you know, you know, two square miles of property doesn't mean that you're going to have that one key spot that you need. So, you know, I've, I've always focused my efforts around, you know, sanctuaries where deer can get away from the majority of the hunting pressure and get age on them. And, you know, that's normally where you're going to find a really big deer like that is close to some type of sanctuary, whether it's a farm that's never been hunted or, you know, city limits where there's no hunting, but, you know, that's always in the back of my mind as far as, you know, a specific area, you know, where, where I would think a big buck could get away from, uh, hunting pressure. You know, if there's a sanctuary close by, that's probably going to be one of the first things I'm going to look for. And, you know, you start knocking on doors and you you knock on that one door where, where, you know, we've never let anybody hunt, you know, where we feed the deer, you know, you know, it's a safe spot. Even if you can't get permission for that spot, you know, chances are that's going to be a good bet for deer in that area to, you know, funnel to once the pressure is on. So just knowing a spot like that and where it's at and maybe having permission adjacent to it or close to it, you know, um, that's a, that's always been a key with me is finding those little sanctuaries where these deer can get away from the hunting pressure. Cause you know, it takes four or five, six years for a deer to get that big in most places. And they've got to have, they've got to have a safe spot. So yeah. that would probably be the key for me to focus on is, you know, compared to trying to have, you know, as much permission as I possibly could. I really want, you know, the, the one key spot and that would be my first go-to. What's your, what's your angle or I don't know if angle is the right word, but like when you walk up to someone's door cold and you knock on that door and they answer and they look at you like, well, what are you doing here? What do you say to these people? Like how, how do you present yourself? How do you, how do you, how do you have this conversation? Boy, if we all had the answer to that one, it would be a game changer. Wouldn't it? (laughs) Right way to do that. Yeah. It's not easy. You know, that's getting to be the hardest part of the game anymore. And I've actually kind of laid off of that whole going up and knocking on the door thing. I mean, if I do, you know, try to look, look and act presentable, which for me can be a challenge on any given day, <laughs> but, you know, not, not look the part, you know, and I'm more than happy to share, you know, that I'm, you know, actually filming, which over the years has helped me, but I think people kind of caught on to that whole thing, but to let people know that I'm just not out there to, you know, kill something. I'm actually out there filming. It has helped. Um, but like I said, I've kind of gotten away from that whole thing with knocking on doors. And I, I start off with a letter, you know, handwritten letter to the landowner, introducing myself and, 
who I am and where I'm from and what I'm doing and, you know, try to find out if, um, you know, they would be interested in having a conversation about hunting. And I've even gone as far as just to ask for permission to photograph first, you know, to get to meet the landowner so that it, it's tough for somebody, you know, I'm a, I'm a landowner myself now and somebody comes knocking on my door, you know, I'm, even though I am a hunter and I'm not going to let anybody hunt here, <laughs> you just never that, know. That person did not do their research. <laughs> yeah. And you, you just, people, people want to know who they're dealing with and that's pretty hard to do the first time you know they meet you when you're knocking on their door in the evening during the week as they're eating dinner so i think the biggest thing is to try to get to know the landowner so they can get to know you a little bit before you start asking for you know permission to run all over their farm and shoot their deer yeah uh and have you found that that letter works better like do you have a better yes rate now that you're doing the letter versus the walk up to the door first thing yeah but it's probably because i'm a little more picky on the spots that i'm trying to get permission than i used to be you know yeah yeah so it has helped so adam you you've been kind of you're you're pretty known for that strategy of you know spot a big one research the landowners and get in there and try to get permission. And, and you've been doing that a long time. Like how much harder is it now? Like what, what's the ratio of no's to yeses these days versus when you started doing this? Oh, 10 to one, 20 to one. I mean, when I got started, you, you could get permission anywhere. I mean, it's just not the same game anymore. That's yeah, it's a lot harder that, now. That's, that's probably conservative. Is this to be closer to 50 to one, 50 to one <laughs> could be, <laughs> do you, uh, I, mean, I I'm always curious when I hear, I hear somebody like you talking about, you know, finding these big bucks and seeing them, you know, taking a drive in the evening in August or wh- whenever you see them and however you see them. I mean, are there, are there any secrets left when you, when you bump into one of those bucks that you're like, I've got to get after this deer. I, I just always envision that deer being known by so many people because there's so many trail cameras and so much of this information is out there. Do you ever find one that's just a secret? Sure doesn't seem like it, you know, and you're right. There's just so much pressure. That probably has a lot to do with, you know, the landowner stuff that we were just talking about as well, because, you know, 20 years ago, you know, in Ohio, it was, you know, it was nothing to drive around in the fields in the evenings, the bean fields and see deer out everywhere. And you just can't do that anymore because there's so many people doing it. And the pressure is just, it's just tenfold what it used to be. So it makes things, it makes things definitely tougher, but I think, and, you know, on the flip side of that, it's created a scenario where I think we have a lot more mature deer because, everybody's doing the most with their property they're you know they're letting younger deer grow and managing for trophy deer so it's a two-edged sword yeah so let me jump in on like kind of piggyback off of that and let's play out this hypothetical scenario a little bit further into the year then given this new challenge of increased pressure at least increased number of people that are pretty serious about this stuff so let's say you you saw this giant you you sent some letters, you had a farm or two where they gave you a yes. Let's say that, let's say one property gave you a yes. 
and you're excited about it and you come back and you start your process. And at least from past conversations we've had and past things I've seen you do, a big part of your process is observing these deer from afar kind of narrowing down what they do, when they're going to do it, and then you you wait for the right time, the right moon, the right weather, the right day of the month. And let's say late October arrives and you get the red moon and you've watched this buck come in and out of a bean field and then you move in to kill him. Like if, if we're going to oversimplify and say like that's your usual process, tell me what you would do in the situation where you start doing that, you start observing, you've got some cameras out and he's there. He's on the property you have permission on, and he's pretty frequent. Like he's in the area, and you're thinking, okay, he's killable. I just need to wait for the right moment. But then, just as you're realizing this, you get wind of the fact that there are two other guys who also now have access to the property, and they also know about the same buck. How does your approach change with that knowledge now, that there's two other guys going after him in the same place? What do you do different? You know, I think most of the deer, you know, that I've hunted, been hunting in the last 10 years, I you know, have that scenario pretty much. I, I don't know where I've been, where I was the only person hunting a specific deer, <clears throat> you know, when there was no other pressure around. I mean, it's pretty much a constant, especially here in Ohio. So I've just kind of always been been that guy that would allow other guys to pressure deer and to push them into my area. But I guess if I'm on the same farm with other guys, it really doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to let those guys, um, make the mistakes and and push the deer. And I want to, you know, stack the deck in my favor as far as the best time to go in and make a move on a deer. I, you know, you know, if you know there's a big deer on a farm and it's hunting season, I think most guys feel like they have to be hunting. And I'm never going to advocate for somebody not to be hunting, but there's a difference between hunting, scouting, observing. You know, if if I've done my homework and I think I know where I need to be to kill a deer, I've done my scouting, uh, maybe I've seen him make a mistake. You know, I've I found that right tree where I need to be. I want to stack the deck in my favor so that the first time I go in, I think everybody would agree the first time you hunt a stand is the best time you hunt it. But I want to stack the deck in my favor so that when I go in there, everything is in my favor for that deer to be up and moving. And the, I think the more times you go into a farm and don't kill that deer, it gets tougher each time. You know, whether we want to admit it or not, that deer is probably either seeing us, smelling us, hearing us. And each time we go in, that deer, that deer is getting smarter and smarter, just like we think we are, you know, trying to figure them out. So I want to minimize that and maybe let other guys come in, get their routine, let a big deer pattern them and stay out of my spot until I know everything's perfect. You know, and like I said, I'm going to scout 10 times more than I hunt because I want to do all the legwork to know exactly where I need to be. You know, my scouting is going to tell me where I need to be to kill a big deer. It's the other factors that I pay attention to that let me know when the prime time is to go in and try to kill him. You know, maybe let the other guys burn their spots out, 
push the deer out of the spots that they're hunting and hopefully push them in, you know, to my farm. And that's something that happens every year. You know, I'll stay out of my spots until all my factors that I'm looking for line up and let other guys pressure and push those deer into, into my spot. And then when everything's right, slide in and try to kill them. And more times than not, if you, if you've got the patience and the persistence to stay out of those spots until everything, everything lines up, most of the time, um, at least for me, it's worked. And I've been able to kill those big deer by doing that. But I think we might have talked about it before, but I think, you know, the toughest part of hunting big deer is actually not hunting them until everything's lined up. And then going back to what I said earlier, I'm not going to advocate somebody not hunt, but that doesn't mean that you're not out there in a tree stand observing maybe you're not in your kill spot maybe you're not in the stand where you think you're going to kill them but maybe you're in a tree stand three or four hundred yards away with a spotting scope watching that area develop or trying to pick up on another little piece of the puzzle or maybe you're you know on a completely different farm trying to pick up on a deer or find you know get a look at a buck that's vanished i mean i'm i'm not going to be sitting at home on the couch because it's not a good moon day or because the weather's not right I'm always going to be out there at least scouting and observing, but I'm not going to go in and put all that effort into the finding those spots and figuring a big buck out. I'm not going to go in there and try to kill them until everything's in my favor. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest difference between me and other guys. Let the other guys burn up their spots and push the deer out and let the deer, you know, pick up on what they're doing and pattern them. And, you know, I'll slide in when time is right in the right spot and kill them. Yeah. Now, in our past conversations, we spent a lot of time talking about like what you think those right conditions are that you wait for. But for the sake of those people that maybe didn't hear those, can you just give me the really quick, like one minute overview of the key things that you're waiting for that they're going to tell you like, okay, now is the time to leave the long distance observation stand and go in for the kill. Well, yeah, I mean, it's <clears throat> the battle is is trying to figure out what a big deer is going to do before he does it. You know, through our scouting and stand placement and all that, it's you know playing that chess match, trying to figure out where you need to be to kill him. But before I go in, there's a few things that that I want to have in my favor, and you know, any of these factors can get a big deer up and moving during daylight. You know, everybody, ever I think everybody will agree. You know, the weather is probably the most important thing. You know, a great weather pattern, barometric pressure, high pressure, cold front <clears throat> is probably, you know, you know, the key to everything. Um, a perfect wind direction for the deer you're hunting. You know, that was one of the big things for me that changed my success drastically was when I quit hunting winds that were good for me and I started hunting winds that were good for the deer I was after. You want to give a mature deer the wind to his advantage so that he feels comfortable enough to get up and move before dark. Because nine times out of ten, a big deer that's been around five or six years, he ain't going to move before dark anyway most of the time. But on those nights that he's going to move a little bit early, it's usually because a couple of these factors line up, and one of them in particular is going to be a wind to his, you know, to his advantage. So... The wind, the weather, and the moon, um, I've just followed the moon for way too long to disregard it. It's, 
it's a factor that affects animals that you know everybody knows fishermen serious fishermen have followed the moon forever i've done my own research for the last 20 years you know paying attention to it and watching deer and it affects all deer and it really affects mature deer because those deer just don't move during daylight that often but when i've seen a move it's happened too many times they're 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 moving on this red moon and like i said any of those three factors can trigger a, an animal to move during daylight what i'm looking for is when you get those evenings where two or three of those factors line up that's when stuff starts getting bloody you know when you line up multiple factors you got a perfect wind for that deer to feel comfortable enough to get up and move before dark you throw a great weather pattern on where you got a cooler temperatures you got high barometric pressure maybe you had a storm come through or just blow out you know some weather pattern that's going to increase activity and then you combine one or two of those on top of one of the evenings where that red moon and the gravitational pull is naturally pushing those deer to get up and feed when they want to normally feed anyway i mean that's that's what I'm looking for, and that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying I'm trying to stack the deck in my favor. I want everything, every natural factor to influence that deer to get up and move just a little bit early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that kind of drone strike approach. You you put all the pieces together, you narrow down your field of view until you know the best possible place. And then you wait till the targets right there, or at least the absolute best chances of it with all those conditions. And then you take that one surgical strike. Um, I I love it when those things line up that way too. Now, Tony, what what do you, what do you think? And do you want to press more on this or do you want to pivot to another hypothetical on your end? Cause I'm, I'm curious what's going on in your head right now. I want to I want to revisit go back to the the wind direction being right for them because this is this is something we get asked about a lot too, and I know you know Adam mentioned that when he figured that out, kind of changed his perspective on everything. And I can I had a light bulb moment like that years ago with bucks on on a specific spot on a ridge where the wind there there was one spot to set up, but there's a little juke in the ridge with a uh, kind of a ravine washout there that just had to take them just outside of like the real comfort zone for traveling with the wind. And that was like the spot on the spot. And I realized when I would see big bucks there, it was because the wind was so good for them. They were confident to move, but I had one little spot that I could get into a tree where it was also really good for me blowing out over this Valley. And I think this is, this is kind of a confusing topic for people. Cause if you say the wind's perfect for the deer, they think, well, I, I can't play it then. And like, obviously the advantage is there, but this is kind of like a little current seam in a Smalley river or something where there might be one little spot somewhere where the wind doesn't give them the advantage. And I, I kind of want Adam to break that down a little bit more because I think this is such an important thing for deer hunters to really understand. Yeah, it is. And the, that, that little spot you're talking about is, is what I call a weak spot. You know, it's a spot where, you can actually get within bow range of a deer on his normal travel pattern while he's using the wind to his advantage, but he can't wind you. I mean, most of my spots, you know, my kill spots, if you want to call them that, are spots where you're, you're virtually splitting hairs with the wind. You know, that that wind goes off track, you know, 10 or 20 yards one way or the other, it could be game over. You know, I'm constantly splitting hairs because it's not, an easy thing 
to do or to find where you can get, you know, within bow range of Buckwick when he's actually using that wind. I mean, they're masters at that. And it's, you know, it really is splitting hairs. And, you know, Ozonics has completely changed the game for me too, because, you know, when every time you're going out and looking for those killer wind scenarios where, you know, that buck is using the wind to his advantage and, you know, just 10 yards one way or other, he could pick you off. You know, you got to do everything you can to eliminate your scent. And if God, I honestly believe that if guys aren't taking advantage of, of what's available out there, especially with the Ozonics these days, you're missing the boat because it's, it was a game changer for me. I, I thought it was a gimmick at first. And I mean, I'm carrying enough stuff into the woods between my hunting gear and, and filming and cameras and camera arms. Cause I film myself most of the time. I'm not going to carry something else into the woods if I don't have to. And if I don't believe that it works, you know, I just don't need to carry something else out with me. And, you know, when you're constantly in those situations where you're splitting hairs on wind direction, you gotta, you've got to use something like that because you might only get one chance at it and, you know, throw, throw into the equation, the other deer that you're going to see before something like that happens, you know, the, yeah. the does and the immature bucks and everything else, the other animals that you've got to beat before that big one moves, um, as well. I mean, you just gotta, like it goes back to the same thing. You gotta stack the deck in your favor with every possible thing that you can and that's just a, another piece of the puzzle yeah yeah you know you bring up one of my biggest challenges on some of my local michigan properties where there's a very high deer density is that i can find these spots where i think the buck i'm after is going to come through and where i think i've got that weak spot where the wind will be you know right enough for both of us but there's so many damn does that are going every which way that there's there's yeah. almost nowhere I can get to ever where there won't be does going downwind of me. And so it's this it's it's constantly trying to find some way to avoid that problem where you know if if you get one doe to blow, that's it for the night usually or in many cases. So how, how have you dealt with it, that? That makes that that, that makes finding those um, those weak spots that much more important. You know, like Tony was talking about, he's found that one little spot where, you know, it's, it's the wind's good for the deer, but they can't wind him. And, you know, you find, I find it in some of the weirdest places. I'll never forget. I'd know this older gentleman that's, you know, been hunting longer than I've been alive. And he told me one time, he said, Adam, if you've gone more than a hundred yards from your truck, you probably went too far. (laughs) And (laughs) that is proven right every year and you know with with big deer they find these out of the way spots that you just wouldn't think about and sometimes it's you know it's close to buildings or close to a road or just different spots that most guys wouldn't pay attention to but it it um, creates scenarios where you can use you know i can't tell you how many times i walked right down a road and then just jumped right into a tree right off the road, you know, you know, obviously paying attention to how far you've got to be off the road when you're hunting, but spots that you're able to access without tipping off any, any of the, you know, deer in the area. 
and then having the wind, your wind, blowing out into a spot that deer just can't get downwind of you. I mean, you really, sometimes you really got to put some thought and effort into finding those spots, but you, you got to find those spots where, you know, they just, they can't get your wind. They just can't, no matter what they do. And especially in a high deer density area, like you're talking about, you got to back yourself up to a cliff or a road or freeway or housing development. I mean, <clears throat> just got to think outside the box sometimes to find those spots, but they're out there. They are not easy to find, but you know, it, it happens a lot of times where a deer has got to make a turn in his travel route or in an area that he's forced to go through. You know, maybe it's some type of uh, spot where there's a, you know, down fence or where a fence stops or, you know, uh, deep ravines, um, deep water. I mean, just anything that's going to force a deer through an area where he might have to drop his guard briefly. You know, and I've, I've found those spots where you, you can't beat the spot and you can't beat the wind. But by the time that buck is into my wind, he should already have an arrow through him, you know? Yeah. Wind's blowing directly at the spot where I know I need to kill him. So, you know, by the time he gets my wind, which directly downwind of me, it, it should be too late. I should already have an arrow in him. So it's, I've taken it to that extreme before just because there was no other way around it. Yeah. And then just hope and pray that it's not the two year old buck that shows up and walks through there first and blows everything up. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so what about this then? Yeah. Let's, let's take that and apply it to a situation that Tony and I actually were looking at and talking about this spring when we were out doing some scouting in Iowa and, and let's say you have got a buck you want to shoot and we're in, I don't know, late October and you have watched him. You've caught sight of him a couple times, finally stepping out in the back corner of this field. It's October 24th. And then the 25th, uh, for whatever reason, you couldn't hunt the next day. You're watching it. He does it again. But as you look at this spot through your binos and you've looked at the map, this back corner of the field is basically like the inside corner of the beginning of like a deep cut almost. Like there's steep ridges that blow up, that come up on either side. So it's basically at the bottom of a, of a valley. And mm-hmm. there's this risk of swirling winds and, and, and everything that could come with being at the bottom of a narrow ravine of sorts. What do you do in that situation when you go in there and you're facing what many people would assume would be a dangerous wind situation? Do you say he was moving here two days in a row in daylight? I got to just take a swing for the fences and try. Or do you go in there and you realize like, okay, there's no way this will work with my wind. I'm not going to hunt it because it's not worth risking him winding me. What do you do in that situation? Or what are you thinking about as you try to find a solution? I'll tell you what, man, things, things change so frequently during season that I think there's a point in time where you just got to be aggressive, you know, and I think I probably learned that from, you know, the most aggressive hunter I've ever met in my life, Andre DeQuisto, Mm -hmm. the guy that invented lone wolf tree stands. He's the most aggressive hunting guy that I've ever met. And you know, I learned a lot from the time I spent with, with him hunting and filming and, 
you know, I don't consider myself to be an aggressive hunter, but there's certain situations, you know, you see a deer making a mistake once, you know, shame on him. You watch him do it twice, shame on you. <laughs> you know, you've got, there's a point in time where you got to put a stand on your back and dive in and try to get it done. And I've, I killed one of my biggest deer ever doing that exact same thing. You know, that was a back corner of the field. I um, I watched him come out, you know, the night before I knew I had to be in there. I didn't have the perfect wind direction. I actually had to walk in there with the wind at my back, but my wind was blowing straight down um, the fence line that he was going to be crossing instead of blowing back into the, back into the CRP and, you know, hung a stand and watched that deer get up at right before dark at 80 yards away and, you know, killed a 208 inch deer that night and didn't really know anything about the property other than the fact that that buck came out of there the night before. And I knew I had to be there the next night that corn had just come down and he was pushing a couple of does around. I knew I had to be in there. So, I mean, you're talking about a situation with swirling winds, you know, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to, to be as scent free as possible. You know, I think using the nosonics in that situation is going to help tremendously. I had kind of that same scenario I found myself in a couple of years ago on an elk hunt. You know, we were hearing this bull scream in the afternoon and we kept getting closer and closer and closer. And he was up on this ridge and closer we got, we got right to the edge of where, you know, two hills came down into this field and we were right up against it. And I just felt like it was one of those deals where my wind was swirling. And even though I was where I thought I needed to be, I knew if, if that bull came down through there, that chances are he's going to pick us off. So we just backed up a hundred yards to where, you know, the wind wasn't swirling as much and ended up shooting that bull later that evening, you know, because he came out into that pasture and started chasing cows around. And if I, if, if I would have stayed right there, it was wild. Cause we, right where we were standing is right where all the cows showed up and they milled around those trees where we were at for, half hour and there's no way that they would not have picked us off right there if we'd have stayed right there but just knew it was not i was not in a good situation and backed up 100 yards and ended up working out maybe that's the scenario is you know where he's coming out at <clears throat> do you know where he's going you know is he just going to come out in the middle of that field and feed is there a water source he's heading to maybe backing up a little bit to where you think that deer might be going or what direction instead of being right on top of him where you saw him, maybe you need to back up a little bit and think in your head, well, where's that deer going to end up going? Or maybe you back up a little bit and you stick a decoy out to try to get him out of that corner where the wind's, you know, swirling and not in your, in your benefit. I mean, you know, sometimes you got to do stuff on the cuff, you know, and, and, and react to a situation. And, you know, it's great to be mobile <clears throat> and have the uh, opportunity to bounce around a little bit or go in and do a hanging hunt and pick a tree. But uh, just because you see a big deer do something in one specific area doesn't mean you have to be right in that spot to kill him. And, you know, if you've got a bad wind situation, there's only so many things you can do to control your scent. Maybe you just need to think a couple steps beyond that. Yeah. You know, like I said, where that deer is going to end up, where he's going to go, what you could do to pull him in a different direction. 
Yeah, that's a great point. That's a really good point. Uh, Tony, the next pitch is yours. Where do you want to take it? Oh, man. Um, I, I have a hard time moving on from some of this stuff, but if you really want me to, I will. <laughs> well, if you, want, if, you want to, if you want to keep drilling in on this scenario, you can. Um, I, I want you to take, take us wherever your whims are pointing, Tony. Well, so with, with Adam, with what you just said there, I kind of want to expand on that because it's, there, there is all these different strategies and you've talked about, you know, being mobile, observing a ton, waiting for the right conditions, and then also bringing up Andre and moving in quick on them. But what you're, what you're really kind of saying, I think with a lot of this stuff is that scenario you just described there, you know, you see one night, you see the, your target buck, he gets up, he hops a fence, he goes in the field here. And you go tomorrow, I've got to be there. But then you, you qualify that by saying, well, but if the wind is right and the conditions are right and you got to think about what he's doing. And I think, I think that's where we, we kind of lose ourselves a lot of times is we get sort of starstruck. We see this buck do something. We go, he walked right by that tree. I have to be there. And we force it without thinking about where did he come from? Where's he going? And, and trying to just factor in as much of the data as we can to make a decision and go, okay, if I can't be there, what's, what's the next best scenario instead of just kind of talking ourselves into hunting the wrong spot. I I mean, I I think I hear from hunters who, who kind of fall for that a lot. And it's really important to have that extra information, anything you can get to do that back up a hundred yards or move down here or get on that pond he's going to. It's, it's a, it's a thin line between being aggressive and, you know, being smart and trying to, you know, sometimes you're just rolling the dice, you know? Um, and one thing is for sure, when it comes to hunting big deer, nothing is ever, you know, a hundred percent definite. I mean, it just, things are just changing constantly and you got to be able to adapt to that situation and make, make your best call. So, you know, if the wind's bad, <clears throat> do, you, do you roll the dice? Do you stay out of the area, maybe observe it and see what he's doing? I mean, you know, it depends on what the, you know, what the situation is. Are you early October where that deer is still going to be on a strict feeding pattern for, you know, two or three more weeks or is it, you know, the first week in November and chances are, you know, he's going to be on a doe in the next few days and you're not going to see him again. I mean, there's just so many things you got to take into consideration. And, you know, I think the, the, the one thing that a lot of guys need to do more of in that situation is really just step back and use your brain and think about it. You know, think about all the factors and, you know, at the end of the day, you got to make a calculated guess on what you're going to do. So, I mean, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer, but <clears throat> I just like to try to gather as much information I, as I can about it and try to make an educated guess. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But a lot of that, a lot of that comes from you know spending 40 years chasing deer. You know. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a big confidence factor there as far as you know trusting your gut on whether to move in or stay out. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver. 
off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. What about this? What about a situation? We've talked a bunch here about what happens when you see a buck and you see him do something and then you're going to make a play on him based on what you saw. What about the situation where you can't see him? So let's say you had a buck that you, you know, identified on a property that you were interested in, in targeting. And then he shows up a time or two on trail camera, you know, in September. So you know that he's still in the, still alive and still somewhere in the general area. But now you know, it's it's early October. You still don't have a strong idea of where he is or what he's doing. It's mid-October. Still don't know where he really is. It's not obvious where his core area is. He just shows up every once in a while randomly on a camera here, a camera there. Now it's late October. It's the last 10 days of October. It's your favorite time of year to kill a specific buck, and this is the buck you want. You still can't pin him down. You've glassed from the road. You've sat observation stands, and it's just this occasional random picture here occasional random picture there and now it's almost the rut and when the rut hits of course the the deck gets reshuffled again too what do you do now to try to zero in on this deer it's 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 october end of october and it's about to get crazy what are you going to do to try to find this buck or or do you just say hey this is a buck that's not living on me i'm going to move on to something else I think the worst thing you can do is spend too much time in the wrong area. You know, if you know, he's, if you know of a big deer and you can't find him, you got to find him. You know, and that was, that, that was another thing I learned, you know, spending time with Andre is you got to be on the freshest sign and 
find those deer because if if you're in the wrong spot you're not doing yourself any favors and sometimes it's a matter of putting a stand on and sticks on your back and burning a little shoe leather and and go and find them and you know Andre made a career out of doing that and, and bumping big deer out of their beds and killing them, you know, the very next day. Cause you know, he would, he would always have the wind in his face so that a, a big deer, if he did bump a big deer, it wouldn't uh, smell him. He didn't necessarily care if a big deer saw him, but he didn't want a big deer to smell him. And he'd bump a big deer out of his bed. He'd have a stand on his back and immediately hang that stand because his whole theory was he would want to be there the very next time that deer came back into his bed. Most guys jump a big deer. They're, oh, I'm going to let this area cool off for a few days, come back and hang a stand and let it cool off for a few more days. And they end up hunting it a week or two later. And by then that deer's come back, smelled that you were there and chances are he's never going to be back. Andre wanted to be there the very first time that deer came back, whether it was the next day or the second or third day, he'd sit there and wait for that deer to come back and be there the very first time that buck came back to bed in that area and killed a lot of giant deer doing that. And, you know, a big deer is leaving sign behind that time of the year, especially with scrapes and giant rubs. And that's the first, that's probably the first thing that I'm going to look for if I can't find a deer I'm after is I'm going to be looking for those giant rubs because they're leaving sign behind somewhere. You know, you might, <clears throat> you might want to start on the uh, field edges. I mean, the, the bedding areas is probably going to be the last place I'm going to look, you know, look, cause I really don't want to bust a big deer out of his bed, but you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You find him and jump him out of his bed. Well, you didn't know where he was to begin with, you know, so at least you know where he was and get an idea of what he's doing. I mean, I just, I'm not one of those guys that's just going to sit there and just wait and hope that that big deer eventually shows up. You got to get out there and find a deer. I mean, season only lasts for so long. And once the rut rolls around, you never know what they're going to be doing and, you know, who's hunting them. And if they're, if they end up getting shot, I mean, you gotta, you gotta do everything you can to find those deer that time of the year. And if, you don't know where he's at. You better find him because somebody else is probably going to. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing that specific thing, which you just described, which is you've got to stand on your back and you're burning boot leather until you find something that tells you, oh, yeah, this could be it. You mentioned big rubs and scrapes. What's like the threshold for you to say, oh, yeah, this is it versus, oh, yeah, this is a, a random big rub. You know, if you f- you find that first big rub and scrape and it's in good cover, do you say, OK, that's enough? Or do you need to see one, two, three, four, five of these all tight together next to really great cover and it's steaming and there's piss still in the scrape? Like what level of hot big buck sign do you need to see to tell yourself that this is this is it? This is where he is. I'm looking for multiple big rubs. I mean, when you start walking trails and field edges and you start finding rubs and scrapes and you're starting to find, you know, trees as big as your leg that, you know, every, you know, 40 or 50 yards that are rubbed, you know, and you know, there's a big one, you know, working, you know, working that trail. I mean, that's really what I'm looking for. You know, it's always great to find a big rub, but when you're finding multiple rubs or you get into a, uh, you know, a bedding area situation where there's 
a, a bunch of big rubs and small rubs in an area that looks like a big deer spending a bunch of time. You know, you're probably pretty close to his core area. You know, and you just start reading the sign. I mean, you find a trail that's got giant rubs on it. I mean, you can tell what direction that deer is walking when he made those rubs. And if he's making those rubs going back into his bedding area in the morning or making them in the evenings coming from his bedding area. I mean, it's just really about reading that sign and trying to figure out, you know, what he's doing. But when I'm finding multiple, you know, big rubs in in an area like that, that's really what I'm looking for. Okay. Now, how in this, again, this scenario of late October, your target buck's a ghost and very random, and you're trying to tighten in on where he's at specifically. How do trail cameras, if at all, play into this now? I mean, we've talked about observing and scouting on foot. Are you doing anything unique with your cameras at this point to try to pick them up too? I use a lot of cellular cameras just so I'm not going in and out of these spots to check them, especially during season. I mean, the the information you, you can get from a cell camera during season is worth its weight in gold. So I, you know, <clears throat> I, I actually run more cellular cameras during season than I do regular cameras just so that I can get that, that real time information. You know, and if I, if I find an area that I think a big deer is using, <clears throat> I'm going to have a cell camera on that rub line or scrape line to you know, to get that information instantly instead of waiting a week and going back and checking it. I want to know right now if that's where that deer is at. What kind of places are you placing, putting those cameras? Is this good? Is it, is it random at first? And then you take one of those, I mean, he shows up once and then do you grab all of them and then zero them in on that area? Or do you keep it widely dispersed? Your camera's widely dispersed to observe like all the different places is going I'm just curious if you if you adjust and and slowly get tighter and tighter and tighter on him or or not. I'll tell you what, man. I think these big deer these days are picking up on these cameras. I mean, it seems like every week I talk to somebody else that's got a story about how they got a pick one picture of a big deer and then they never got it again, or they've uh, set up multiple cameras, you know, a camera on another camera to see how the deer are reacting to it and watching these big deer skirt these cameras and walking around them or get their picture once. And then, then they never go by that camera again. So it's one thing to set a camera up on a scrape or a rub line, something that's going to stop that deer in its tracks and get a good picture of them. It's another thing to set a camera up, you know, on video mode to cover a little bit of a wider area, maybe because you don't know what's coming through there, exactly where they're coming through, just to pick up on the action that, you know, that um, you you might not know exactly what they're doing. So it just depends on the situation, but I'm going to, I'm going to usually put four or five cameras in the spot. If I think there's a big deer moving through there and I'm trying to figure out what, trying to figure out what he's doing. I'll very rarely just hang one camera for a specific deer. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, here's, uh, here's a strong pivot, a hard pivot from like picking the right location or locating a deer to actually a scenario of what you would do in a tree. So let's say we are now into November and you've been trying to find this buck out, but haven't killed him yet. 
you're up there, you finally see him. You're in this tree, November 1st, and you're hunting, I don't know, back near a doe bedding area, and this buck shows up. First time, you finally are in a tree and you see this buck you've been trying to kill all year long. But he is out of range. He's cruising across at about 60 yards, and he's not walking away from you. He's not walking towards you. He's kind of walking parallel to you. And at the moment, he's not downwind, but if he continues on his current trajectory, and if he gets another 100 yards or so, he will hit your wind. What do you do in that situation? Do you call to a buck like that in that situation? Do you do nothing and just wait and wait and see what's going to happen, hope he comes closer and won't catch your wind? Or would you say... Eh, he's heading in my wind. I don't want to grunt and have him go closer to downwind. I need to take the shot now. It's sixty. Uh, what do you What do you do then? I kill him at sixty yards. <laughs> I, okay. I practice. I practice. I practice out to seventy yards all summer long, and mainly for elk hunting. But <clears throat> I've killed two or three deer at sixty plus yards, and yeah, I with with equipment and the technology available to hunters these days. If you're not able to kill a deer at sixty yards, that you've got nobody to blame but yourself. Honestly, I mean, I'm probably the worst shot of anybody that I know. I got the shakiest hands in the world. If I can kill a, six, a deer at sixty yards, anybody can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's just a matter of practice and knowing your equipment and, you know, getting dialed in and, and, you know, practice, practice, practice. But the thing about it, thing about shooting distances, it's it's great to be able to shoot something at 60 or 70 yards. And, you know, I'm sure one of these days I won't be able to do it anymore, but as long as I can do it accurately, I'm going to keep doing it. But practicing at 60 and 70 yards every night makes your close shots a no-brainer i mean i don't even think twice about my 20 30 40 yard shots anymore i mean it's it's i hate to say chip shot i'm gonna knock on wood right now but Mm -hmm. (laughs) it really makes your closer shots just second nature you know when you practice at those distances it just it, it changes the game for you with with your closer shots really believe that it's that's what it's done for me like are there any situations in which you wouldn't take the 60 yard shot like if it if it was raining would you take the 60 yard shot if it was 15 mile an hour wind would you take the 60 if that buck was on edge because he kind of knew something was going on would you still take that shot what about those edge situations yeah the wind's probably the big one i mean Last thing you want to do is make a bad shot on a big animal. So normally when it's it's that windy, I'm not going to be taking any any long distance shots. But you know, a couple of the deer that I've shot at that distance, you know, I've had to grunt and stop those animals because you definitely don't want to shoot a moving target at that distance. So th- those animals have been on alert because they heard something because I stopped them and. I think when you're a little further away like that, uh, I, I think maybe the reaction might be a little bit slower than if you're right on top of them. So I just haven't seen deer react to my bow at that distance. 
like I have, you know, being closer to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Just because they're the sound isn't reaching them the same so quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They might be a little less apt to, you know, immediately jump the string because you're a little further than the, the sound. You know, the sound isn't right on top of them, so usually aim just a little bit lower on a far shot like that anyway to allow for a little bit of a reaction from a deer but yeah i, I want to be prepared to take a 60 or 70 yard shot at a deer if the situation presents itself i want to i'm gonna play this scenario out in a worst case way which I know you're going to practice and and you're going to do everything you possibly can so that the worst case scenario doesn't happen. But as at least as my history has indicated, and I think most every once in a while, worst case scenarios do pop up and I'm curious to hear how you handle that kind of situation. And I, and I, I know you've been in this situation. I, I know you had this exact same thing happen. So I'd love to, to understand how you would handle it today. And this situation is this, let's say you have that buck. At 60 yards, it seems perfect. It seems ideal. You take the shot, but that buck moves or something happens and you hit him and you never find him. What do you do? How do you handle that mentally? How do you handle it practically? Like, do you, do you need to take a couple days off and get your head right? Or do you go back out the very next morning and you're hunting again? Uh, what goes through your mind and your heart and your soul and your process to recover from that situation. Well, man, failure is part of bow hunting. I mean, you bow hunt long enough, it's going to happen sooner or later. It's just part of the game. And I'm, um, I believe a hundred percent that, you know, in life it is 10% stuff that happens to you and 90% how you deal with it. And that, that might be my age talking, you know, but I think I've, if I've learned anything, you know, just about everything in life is, is a mental game, you know, and it's how you deal with it. And, you know, I, I watched a good friend of mine two seasons ago out in Kansas had two world-class deer he was hunting, you know, 170, 180 inch deer. And within a matter of two weeks, both of those deer lost half the racks. Now, how many guys is that going to happen to two world-class animals? You lose them both in two weeks. And in October, most guys are just going to be in the corner in the fetal position (laughs) (laughs) crying about Mm -hmm. it. But I mean, you know, he kept running his cameras and, and kept playing the game. And, you know, in less than two weeks, the biggest deer of his life that he'd never seen before shows up on camera and he ended up killing that deer, um, end of the season and his best season ever, you know, the dealing with the highs and lows of bow hunting. I mean, you go from one extreme to the next in, in a matter of hours or days, but one thing is for sure, you know, if you experience a little failure, you, you hit a buck and lose them or the deer you've been watching for five years gets killed by the neighbor. You know, it doesn't matter what the scenario is, but one thing is for sure. If you quit and give up, nothing positive is going to happen from it. You know, 
if you don't go hunt, nothing positive is going to happen. You've got, you just got to realize that it's part of the game. You, know, you got to roll with the punches and, and know that, you know, things could change in a matter of hours. So, I mean, you just, it's just all about being positive and just knowing, you know, from the get go that, you know, if you bow hunt long enough, it's going to happen. And there's, there's a lot of people that talk about success being built on failure. And, you know, the more, more you try something, the more you fail out, fail at it. It's just, you're that much closer to achieving your goal and being successful. So, yeah, I guess you got to put it in perspective and just realize that, you know, at the end of the day, just about any type of success you're going to have is going to be built on multiple failures. So, yeah, yeah, you, you basically got three options. You know, you can you can quit <clears throat> if you fail. You can keep going and keep doing the same things and not learn from the experience and probably keep getting the same results. Or you can, you know, think about what happened, adapt to it, change it, and try again. Yeah, it's really that simple. Yeah, that simple and and that hard though too, right? It's it's one of those things that is. Easy to say oh, yeah. and hard Easier to manage it. Done. Yeah. 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 Oh, and it's, that's tough when you, you know, we all put so much effort into hunting and, you know, chasing these deer and scouting and practicing. I mean, for most guys, it's, you know, year round, 365 days. And then you add the emotion into it and how tore up we all get about it. And then, you know, to have, the rug pulled out from underneath you and lose a deer, you know, the EHD or another hunter, just, it can take the wind out of your sails. That's for sure. But you said, man, it's, it's the highs and lows of bow hunting. And I think that's why we all love it so much, you know, cause you just never know what's going to happen. And, you know, any amount of failures, it just makes that those successes that much sweeter. There's just nothing else like it. So, yeah, very true. Yeah, stick with it, man. Just got to stick with it. Yes, that's uh, that's the name of the game. That's that's for certain. So, uh, so Tony, I want you to take take the wheel here. Paint a doozy of a scenario for Adam. Take us take us somewhere else because I don't want to linger on the 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 real downer of deer hunting right now. Take us somewhere better. Uh, I've I've got a good one for this. I think you know. So way earlier in the conversation, Adam, you mentioned using, you know, maybe hunters on the neighboring farm or the neighboring properties to your advantage and, and waiting for those folks to put some pressure on the deer and position them for you. But w- let's say just, let's, let's say it's October, I don't know, 10th, October 12th, something like that. You've, you've had this buck scouted out, you know, he lives in a certain property and the, everything lines up, the moon lines up, the wind lines up. You're like, I'm, I'm going in there. This is the night I kill him. As you're walking in, you see a trail camera that's not yours. You get a little farther down the fence line. You look and there's a there's a brand new ladder stand there. And so you text the landowner and he says, "Oh yeah, by the way, I let my nephew hunt in there. He likes to bow hunt a little bit." How does that change your plans? What do, what's your next steps there? Well, you guys aren't gonna give me any softballs here, are you? <laughs> <clears throat> nope. So I got a new hunter to deal with on my property. 
Uh, that's a that's a tough one. It's a tough one because you never know what's uh, what another guy is thinking. I mean, and I've had that exact same thing happen to me. You know, sitting in a tree stand, and here comes here comes three hunters across the farm that I've had permission by myself for the last you know so many years to hunt and landowner decided to give his buddies at church and their grandson permission to hunt and all of a sudden i'm gone to having a you know 300 acre farm all to myself to now there's four of us you know and they're walking in uh, with the wind at their back and you know brand new ladder stand hanging 50 yards from my hang on and I mean, you talk about a hunter's worst nightmare, especially when you're on a big deer and you've been scouting all year long, and <clears throat> that's enough to ruin your day. Mm-hmm. But I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier, you know, letting letting other guys make the mistakes and pressure the deer and focusing on, you know, the, the few factors that are really going to get deer up and moving. I mean... There's only so much, you know, we can do as hunters, you know, especially in a situation like that. I mean, what, you know, what really can you do other than to just keep hunting smart and hard? And, you know, if I've learned anything over the years, you never want to put all your eggs in one basket because, you know, you can have that situation happen or you could, you know, that deer that you were chasing gets whacked by a car, you know, and he's laying out on the road when you pull up to the farm. I mean, so many different things that can happen. You put all your eggs in one basket. You've got to have, you know, a plan B and a plan C. I like to have at least two or three different deer every season that I'm focusing on and, you know, want to hunt. It's not always the case, but, um, you know, from year to year hunting specific deer, you know, out of the 10 things that could happen, nine of them are bad. Uh, and you have to plan for that, just like anything else. You gotta you gotta plan for the good and and for the bad. So it always helps to have a backup plan and backup farm and backup deer. And you know, like I said, there's only there's only so many things that we can do. So you know, try to focus on <clears throat> focus on what you know. And you know, if you got other guys hunting your farm, when aren't they hunting? You know. Are these guys that are only hunting on the weekends? Are guys that are only hunting in the evenings? You know, a lot of guys don't have the ability that I have, you know, to hunt pretty much every day of the week. So maybe you got to focus on your morning hunts because they're not pressuring the deer in the mornings. You know, if you got a guy, you know, that's only hunting on the weekends or the evenings, you, you got to hunt when he's not there, you know figure out what he's doing and because i guarantee if there's a mature deer he's probably mature deer on the farm and the guy's not hunting smart the the buck that you're after is probably figuring out what this guy's doing and patterning him so you you gotta take all that into consideration and and uh, adjust accordingly so so in that situation do you try to get to know as much about those other hunters as you can so you can use that to your advantage oh yeah you got to get to know them just like the deer that you're hunting. Yeah, because that makes sense. Chances are when I'm hunting a farm and somebody else moves in, they don't know what I know. You 
They're not doing what I'm doing. They haven't spent the time scouting that I have. You know, I got a really good idea of what the deer is doing and where I need to be. And yeah, the more intel that you can get from, you know, the, the guy that's hunting the farm now and what he's doing and how that's going to affect the deer that you're after. I think a lot of guys think, you know, spook a deer, that deer is going to leave the county, you know, go completely nocturnal, never see him again. Nine times out of 10, that's just not the case. A deer is just going to adjust his behavior accordingly, and you have to do the same. What about during the rut? We've talked a lot here in October. We've talked about like late October. We've talked about these different ways that you're trying to zero in on a deer and adjust to other hunters' pressure and figure out how these deer are reacting to that and what they're doing. But when you throw in the variable of, of hot does, it, it kind of reshuffles everything. And with you being someone who's typically focused on, on a buck or two bucks or whatever, uh, I got to believe that the rut can be maybe frustrating at least in certain ways because they become slightly less predictable. Um, so, so let's drill down one more time on how you would adjust to that variable with one target buck you're after. And we've had all these things happen. Let's, let's add all of these things up. Let's say you, you, you had this situation where you spotted him, you tried to kill him in late October. There was other hunters in there with their tree stands. You tried to go in and there was this tough wind situation on another night when you saw him and you couldn't kill him there. And you, you set up downwind ways of the decoy and try to get him to come your way. That didn't happen. All this stuff hasn't worked out. Now it's November. You are out there and there are hot does and there are bucks chasing and you're thinking to yourself, what am I going to do to zero in this buck now? Because he's not doing anything at all like what he was doing previously. Do you have any ways that you try to zero in on them other than just seeing or getting pictures of them? Or at this point, do you say, okay, I'm not going to obsess over his pattern because he doesn't have one. I'm instead just going to hunt the does like any other rut hunt and just wait until the one buck I like comes through and does the thing. What, what then? You know, I kind of changed my approach to the rut probably 10, 15 years ago. You know, obviously I'm trying to focus on specific deer, you know, every year. And I've been doing that for decades. And, you know, November is the worst time of the year to do that because they're the least predictable they're not on any kind of pattern in November. You never know where they are, or what they're going to be doing. And and how in the world do you know, you know, unless you're out there every day, you know, what, what the phase of the rut is, you know, are they chasing, are they seeking, are they lock down the pre-rut, post-rut. I mean, when I just threw all that stuff out the window and quit trying to figure all that stuff out and just focused on daylight activity, you know, because at the end of the day, you're not going to kill a big deer unless he's up moving during daylight. And I'm a firm believer that there are certain times every day when deer are going to be more active. And that doesn't matter if it's October or November. But I will pay more attention to those activity times in November during the day. You know, obviously, if I'm hunting earlier late season when deer are on a strict feeding pattern, I'm going to focus on, you know, those mornings and evenings when that uh, <clears throat> pull of the moon on top of weather and wind is affecting 
animals to move a little bit earlier or a little bit later, but in November, there are certain days where you've got your peak activity times are going to be hitting during the middle of the day. And whenever that peak activity time hits during the day, that's when I want to be in the woods. There's, there's days in November that I'll completely abandon my typical morning and evening sets and just hunt from 10 to two or maybe sit all day or go in in the morning and hunt until two or three in the afternoon and then maybe get out and, and uh, change my location. But just really focusing on daylight activity and when I think those deer are going to be up and moving during day, the daylight and adjust where I'm hunting accordingly. I mean, if you're hunting midday in November, you don't necessarily want to be out on the edge of a food source. You know, you want to be back in the timber, you know, downwind of the bedding areas or in a funnel or corridor in between bedding areas, catching bucks traveling, but really just completely threw everything out the window that I'd ever learned or read about the rut and just strictly focusing on daylight activity. Cause if the does are up moving, the bucks are going to be up moving <clears throat> and you know, deer have got to be up moving in order for you, for you to kill them. So what, what, that's what really this? my approach. What situation would you prefer? Would you prefer if, if you had to pick, I'm going to give you two options. And you're only allowed to pick one of these days in the rut. One's November 5th, one's November 6th. On November, and this isn't going to be quite right because of how the moon works, but just humor me. We're going to say in one of these days, you're going to get a cold front. It's nice and cold. It's November, and you've got that like 20, 25 degree crisp morning. You can hunt that day. But the moon is not right at all. It's not a red moon. It's it's whatever the opposite of the red moon is, whatever you want to call that. It's it's the worst moon position for daylight mm-hmm. buck activity. That's option A. Option B is there's another day in November you can hunt, and you're going to have a red moon. You're going to have that over overhead moon in the day, in the daylight, towards the edge, and it should be dynamite from that perspective. It's November, but we're in the middle of a warm front, and there's like, 65 degrees, 70 degrees on that day where you have the good moon. Would you rather take the hot day with a good moon or the bad moon with the nice cold temperatures? Which day are you going to hunt? It's <laughs> a good question. I'll give you another scenario. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm in Kansas. <clears throat> I'm hunting a 200 plus inch deer. I scheduled my trip to coincide with the red moon. I know that the red moon is going to hit towards the end of the week, so it's going to get better and better and better each day of the week. But when I get there, it's even hotter than predicted. You know, it's 80, 85 degrees all week, first week of November. Not good conditions for deer to be moving during daylight. Deer aren't moving during daylight pretty much. I killed the biggest deer of my life on the red moon in the evening when it was 80 degrees that day. And I knew that if I was going to get a chance to kill that deer, it was going to be towards the end of the week. So I focused, just focused mainly on the evenings around the water sources 
and ended up shooting that deer hour and a half before dark when it's 80 degrees out. No, no rhyme or reason to why that big mature deer should be up moving in that heat. I don't know how else to explain it other than the fact that, you know, the, the red moon hit, you know, the end of the week sat there for eight or nine days and hardly saw anything moving at all. And that deer got up almost two hours before dark and is up moving, trolling for does in that heat and just no other explanation for it. So I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not going to sit here and say that you should be hunting warmer weather, but I mean, when you've got good conditions, the conditions that I'm looking for, a perfect wind, perfect moon, and maybe, you know, the weather's not optimal, but I've got two of the three factors that I'm looking for. I'm going to be there regardless if it's 70 or 85 degrees. Mm-hmm. And like I said, he killed the biggest deer of my life. But if you want to know what, what conditions I think are perfect and that I've had my best luck in November, if I wanted to create the best scenario as far as all that stuff goes, when you have a overhead or underfoot moon peaking after daylight in the morning, say it's getting daylight at seven o'clock in the morning and that moon is peaking at eight, nine, ten o'clock, I've seen more big deer movement and killed more big deer in November on those late morning hunts because when that moon peaks after daylight, those deer are going to be moving a little bit later in the morning. You know, in the rut, if they're with a doe, following those does back into the bedding areas or searching for that next doe coming into heat, it seems like those cooler mornings when you've got a moon peaking after daylight, you've got better activity lasting later in the morning. Just hands down, if I was going to pick a time, I would want, that's what I would be looking for is a, is a moon that peaks late morning. It seems like the activity lasts longer in the morning, seems to, you know, be prolonged out through midday to, you need to get into uh, your stand before daylight and just plan on sitting, you know, till two or three in the afternoon. But that's when I've seen the most big buck activity in November. You know, it's not your typical red moon evening edge of the food sources. Those mornings when the moon's peaking late, hands down been my best, best days in November. Yeah. Sounds like a good time to be in the tree. It's got me, uh, it's got mm-hmm. me itching for November. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tony, do you have any final scenario you want to play out here? Because uh, you've got your last last question here, and then I want to move to the rapid-fire uh, round of this situation. Yeah, I, just, I have just one thing I'm curious about. So, Adam, everything that you've you've kind of said in this so far and everything you're, you're known for is, you know, finding a target buck – locking onto that sucker and just seeing what you can do. And even more like finding three of them. So you have those backup deer. Is there ever a scenario in any given fall where you just go into the woods somewhere and you hunt, not knowing what's in there and just decide to sit in a tree in a spot you think is good and hope something comes by, or has that never happened for you? You know, it's for me, the whole thing, in the fall is is 
you know, hunting a specific animal and playing the game with that deer and trying to figure them out. I mean, if somebody said, you know, you go climb in this tree and at, at eight o'clock, you know, this giant deer is going to come from this direction. You'll have a 30 yard shot and just put me on the deer. I mean, that just, just doesn't do anything for me. And it doesn't do anything for me personally to just go and sit in the woods and just hope something strolls by. I mean, I just, I guess it probably comes from, you know, chasing specific deer for over 30 years that that's really what it's all about for me. And that's what I get the most enjoyment of from is, is trying to figure out a big deer and what he's doing and that cat and mouse game. So, yeah. Yeah, there's occasion where I'll go <clears throat> climbing a tree, stand out behind my house and just enjoy it. But it's just not the same for me if I'm not after a specific animal. So, yeah, I enjoy the woods as much as the next guy. But <clears throat> if I'm not after a specific buck and trying to figure him out, it just that's not what it's about for me anymore. So I just don't enjoy that. It, just going out and sitting and hoping a big deer comes by just seems like a waste of time for me. You know, season's so short and they come and go and get to really get to appreciate, you know, the opportunity more and more, the older I get. And I want to, I want to be, um, you know, I want to be in the game with a big deer and really that whole one-on-one. So it's not saying that's for everybody, not saying, you know, guys that aren't into that it's wrong and i'm right it's just that's that's what it's all about for me so all right i can't uh can't knock you on that yeah yeah i was just curious there's something about that one-on-one thing i can certainly relate to that no doubt about that so adam next nothing like figuring out a big deer it just really isn't they're just really an amazing animal and when you can beat an animal like that at, at his game on his turf i mean there's just it's so rewarding to do that and you know trying to figure out what they're going to do before they ever do it that's just what it's all about it's a pretty cool thing so the next phase here adam the, the final wrap up here is we're going to have a series of kind of rapid fire questions that i'm going to give them to you fast and <laughs> you've just got one word answer you just you can't explain it. You just have to give me the one one option, yes or no, or this or that. Um, we basically ask the same questions to everyone. So I kind of already know your answer to a few of these, but we're still going to run you through it anyways. Uh, we'll get through this real quick, and then we'll wrap things up, all right? Mm-hmm. All right. And, Tony, I'm, I'm just going to steal a couple of your questions that you added to my list too, all right? <laughs> yep. All right. So, Adam, here we go with the rapid fire. And this first one. Man, you better get this one right. Does the moon matter to deer movement? Yes or no? Yes. Would you take a 50-yard shot at a whitetail with your bow? Yes. If you could only have one of these tools for the rest of your hunts, would you choose a set of rattling antlers or a grunt tube? Antlers. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads? Fixed blade. Should you stop a buck with a sound before shooting? Yes or no? Yes. If you could only pick one season to scout, one of these three seasons, which would you pick? Winter, summer, or in season? Uh, 
winter. Mm. Which state has the better hunters, Michigan, Ohio, or Minnesota? (laughs) (laughs) OH. (laughs) Of course. Uh, In in Michigan, we don't say I-O after that. We say two different letters, but... (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, so okay you you passed the rapid fire i've got one final doozy for you and here's the situation adam let's say that i am the all-powerful ruler of the world and i have control over your right to hunt and i'm gonna tell you adam that you cannot hunt at all for the next 10 years you're done no hunting license no ability to hunt for 10 years unless Unless you kill a six-year-old buck this year, you have to kill a six-year-old just mega giant buck this year, and you only have one mm-hmm. day to do it. You get to pick one day, and you only get to hunt one location. So what I want to know is with this very high stakes on this hunt, what's the one date of the year you're going to pick? Tell me the date you're going to pick, and then describe to me in as much detail as you possibly can, this one best possible location you can think of to kill a six-year-old mega giant that your next 10 years depends on. Good grief. How do you guys (laughs) come up with this stuff? (laughs) Just too much time on my hands, Adam. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. You guys had a little meeting last night on how to stump Adam, didn't you? That's all I've been doing for weeks. (laughs) So I need to pick one day, and you said I need to pick a location or a yeah, state? Like, yeah, like, like to tell me the tree. Like describe your hypothetical tree. Like it, it could be actually literally a tree you know of in a spot you know of, or you could paint the picture of the perfect hypothetical scenario that in a perfect world you could find. Um, so give me the date and describe the place you would sit and hunt to kill this kind of buck that would give you the absolute best chance. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to have to pick um, a day the last week of October. So if I have to pick one of those, I'd say Halloween. I killed most of my biggest deer the last 10 days of October. <clears throat> I think that's probably the best week of the year and, I guess if you were going to pick a day that last week, why not go with uh, with, uh, Halloween? So that would be my day. The um, perfect scenario would be on a big rub line, you know, right on the edge of a food source with a red moon and being within earshot of his bedding area. No, a couple hundred yards from where he's betting. Um, what inform- other information are you looking for here? Mm. Any Anything else you want. This is your hypothetical scenario. So if there's any other factors you want lined up, you can line them up. I'm giving you whatever odds you want to stack in your favor on this one. I'll give it to you. <laughs> or if that's, if, if, that's, if that's your scenario, we can let the dice roll. No, I mean, yeah, obviously, or you know, a red moon evening when the when the moon's perfect, you know, with the with a wind blowing back into the bedding area, 
from the food source so that deer feels super comfortable to get up and move with the wind in his favor towards um towards his food source you know and then to have you know you know high pressure day high barometric pressure making deer more active you know little cooler temperatures i really really like an evening where it rains in the afternoon and then clears off and the sun comes out because it seems like deer just come out of the woodwork on those evenings i think when everything has a little bit of water on it it just it's almost like having salad dressing on your salad you know would you rather eat a dry salad or something that's got you know some moisture on and especially that time of the year when deer are still eating beans and get a little bit of water on the beans or you know clover or whatever they're eating just i don't know what it is about those evenings after rain when the sun comes out but good career if those are great evenings for the deer to move i like it so yeah those three or four factors <clears throat> last week of october what's your perfect tree look are like adam Uh, I'm not as hung up on, on, you know, being as high in a tree as I used to be. I'm more concerned about cover. So obviously, you know, 15 to 20 foot off the ground with plenty of cover and a big tree to break up your, um, you know, your outline, your silhouette. I love, you know, that question you asked me of antlers or a grunt call. I just, when I'm after a specific deer, when I'm hunting in the evening, especially at that last week of October, I love to do a little light rattling. You know, if I know I'm set up with an earshot of where a buck's bedding and I'm on his travel pattern, hunting close to his rub line or maybe his scrape line. And, you know, when I rattle, I just want to make enough noise so that a deer knows where I'm at. And I'm trying to imitate a couple of younger bucks, you know, in, in a, dominant bucks area because that's going to just piss him off and he's going to want up want to get up and you know show everybody who's boss and if he thinks there's a couple of younger bucks messing around in his area uh, it seems like it's almost too much for them not to get up so you know, doing some light tickling with an earshot of his bed he's got the wind in his favor to get up i mean that's just I think it's a deadly combination, especially if you rattle before you think that deer's up and moving. Because I think once a deer's up and moving, it's harder to get him turned to come your way. But if he can rattle to a big deer in his bed, I think you got more of a chance of him getting up and heading in your direction than if he's already up heading in an opposite direction. So I'd probably be doing a little light rattling right about sunset just before I think deer are going to be up moving when they're just laying there thinking about what they're going to do. I like yep, it. That would, be, that would be my that would be my perfect evening. All right. Well, uh, I like the setup. I have confidence in your ability. I think you would get the buck killed, and you'd be able to keep on hunting. So uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's what I think. So so Adam, before we shut this down, can you just give us an update on where we can learn more about everything you've got going on, whether it's the Moon Guide or the show or, or any other projects you want us to know about? Well, the Team 200 show is still running on the Pursuit Channel. This was our eighth season, uh, Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for Big Buck Tuesdays. 
All of our old seasons are available through Waypoint TV, which if anybody's not aware of Waypoint, it's a free app you can get on your phone. They got hundreds of great shows on there. You can get the app on your phone for free or watch it through waypointtv.com. And then they're actually available on just about every uh, smart TV these days digitally. Uh, Did start a new YouTube channel moon guides team 200 um which has got a lot of our a lot of our uh, old episodes on it and some new stuff we're working on uh moonguide.com for the moon guide app or the dial um we did just rebuild the app it's got uh parcel data included in it now and some other pretty cool features completely rebuilt this year on a rock solid platform. So some pretty cool stuff in there. And, um, as always, anybody that wants to reach out to me, you can reach me through social media, um, team 200 moonguide.com info at moonguide for the email on that. I'm a fairly easy guy to get a hold of. And I answer every email or request I get. So, that's amazing. Somebody's got any questions about how, you know, the moon works, what I think about it, you know, um, really anything in general. I'm an open book. More than happy to talk about deer hunting and try to help guys out. So, well, uh, we certainly appreciate you doing that with us here today, Adam. It was, uh, it was fun. And, uh, I guess my last question is, do you have the one picked out for this year yet do you have a buck that's gonna check all the boxes that you're gonna be targeting i mean i have three deer in ohio that were all like right at that you know mid 60s mark last year and i've only seen one of them so far and i think he's probably you know probably past the 170 mark this year he didn't make as big of a jump as i thought but he's super heavy massive 10 point with a couple extra kickers so it's going to be interesting if these other two bucks show up what kind of jumps they made so not sure that i'm got anything north of 200 in ohio this year got one in illinois that still waiting to get pictures of that could definitely crack 200 inches um big non-typical that you know was right at that four four and a half five-year-old mark last year that could just could be a be a world-class animal this year so i can't wait to see you know know that deer made it just waiting to see him show up on camera and then i'm keeping my fingers crossed that they're gonna keep the uh border open for canada this year because was going to be able to hunt a world-class deer there last year and obviously couldn't get up there with the border being shut down and if that deer made it this year who knows what that thing's going to look like, but <clears throat> biggest typical frame deer I've ever seen in my life. So, wow. Well, sounds like you got an exciting an interesting fall. season. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. we, uh, we wish you the best of luck and, uh, let's chat again after you kill a couple of those big guys and find out how you did it. <laughs> sounds good, man. Well, appreciate you guys having me on. Hopefully I, um, didn't make a fool of myself. No, you passed the test. 
<laughs> uh, hopefully there's something in there that uh, somebody picked up on that'll help them out this fall. But yeah, appreciate you guys having me on. Good luck this fall and uh, be safe. Thank you. Same, same Thanks, right man. back at you. And that's a wrap. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, just a little plug here. If you're not already signed up for the Wired to Hunt weekly newsletter, get on that. That's where we're sharing all of our new stuff every week. All the new articles from the Wired to Hunt website, all the new videos from the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel, uh, these new podcasts. It all gets sent out every week along with a note from myself with updates on what I'm doing or different little tips and tricks, things like that. So you can sign up by going to TheMeatEater.com slash Wired and get a little pop-up bubble that shows you the option to sign up for that newsletter. So highly recommend that and checking out all that stuff because Tony and I and Spencer and the whole crew of folks that are doing Wired Hunt stuff now, we're busting our tails to put out a lot of new whitetail content for people that eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff, people like you. So I hope you're able to check it out. Hope you enjoy it and uh, find value in it. So that's all I got. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you. Until next time, stay wired to hunt. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit MarketHouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.